0: Amen, amen. Thank you, Nick. Can you can have a seat and open your Bibles to the book of Joshua, particularly chapter 18. And we'll read two, two short verses and then pray. Joshua 18, and we're going to read verses 1 and 10 to start us off. Joshua 18 verse 1, then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and sent up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. And then in verse 10, and Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua apportioned the land to the people of Israel to each his portion. Let's seek the Lord in prayer one more time. Father God, we are so thankful for your grace this morning. If the definition of grace is to be given something that we do not deserve, then that definition can barely contain the kindness that you have shown us. You have freely given us breath and life, intellect and physical ability. You've given us one another in relationship. You've given us provision and the beauty around us. And most of all, when we rebelled against your reign in our lives, and dismissed your place as our creator and provider, you brought forth redemption and reconciliation by your son's sacrifice. And if this were not enough, you have also reached out to humanity through your word and the conviction of your Holy Spirit and called us to yourself. You are a gracious God. And so we come to you in humble gratitude today. Please continue that work this morning as we look again at your word and stand fast in expectation that you will speak to us through it in spite of my errant speech and our errant hearing. Please help us to hear your truth this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This week, much of the United States will gather with friends and family and loved ones to celebrate the holiday of Thanksgiving. And if you're anything like me, you probably have mixed feelings about it all. On the one hand, it's a time of joy and blessing and thankfulness for God's good provision. But on the other hand, it serves to highlight our depravity, and I'm not just talking about arguments about politics around the dinner table. For only in our current day, America, can we spend one part of a day consuming the abundant blessings we have been given of food and drink, freedom and family and friendship, and then the very next moment drop everything to express our discontentment by trying to get even more of the abundance in the midst of something called Black Friday. Every year, in this contrast, our society proves its need for the gospel. Amen? Amen. Now, going shopping on Black Friday or trying to get a good deal is not, in and of itself, a bad or sinful thing. So if you think to yourself, I hope Hans doesn't see me at the Woodburn outlets, you're going to be okay. But it's the contrast of being given the abundant provision symbolized by the cornucopia of Thanksgiving, placed next to the discontentment that motivates many on Black Friday that proves our need for redemption. It is yet another reminder of the Garden of Eden. There, Adam and Eve were given everything they could ever hope for in abundance. They were told they could eat of every tree that God had given them for food. They could bask in the secure and loving attachment of one another. And yet, instead... Their desire to judge what was good and what was evil for themselves rather than trust God overtook them, and it brought them to a similar place of discontentment, where they wanted what they could not have. And this was not a case of just simple material greed, but one of an attempted coup over God's position as creator, provider, and king. Now, how much better would it have been if they had been content with the portion of God's abundant grace that he had given them? Because we are finite, we were built to be content with a simple portion, not the whole thing, a portion of God's abundant provision. It's when we fight against this truth that sin grows within us. But when we do realize that we are the creation, not the creator, and when we operate in humility rather than entitlement, we see that everything we have is simply God's grace. How much more does this make sense when we move from the physical realm of provision to the eternal realm? For all the good and faithfulness we have been given, we have responded with entitlement, hypocrisy, and rebellion. And so the fact that God initiated and carried through a work of salvation to forgive us of our sins and draw us back to him is nothing but unearned, undeserved favor. It is nothing but God's grace. As we continue through the book of Joshua this morning, we are given a picture of God's abundant grace we find ourselves still in the midst of Joshua's act of giving each tribe a portion of the land that God had promised them. And as we continue through the seemingly boring list of boundary markers and geographic landmarks, we have to be really careful because we will miss the diamonds hidden amongst the repetitive language. 52 times in this section, the word inheritance is used. Eight times in our specific text today, the words portion or apportioning are used. And so it is clear to us that the author is showing us the portion of God's abundant grace that each tribe is receiving. And that is the main theme and the idea of our text this morning, a portion of God's abundant grace. If you're taking notes, you can write that down, a portion of God's abundant grace. As we will see throughout this section of the apportioning of the inheritance, we hit points in the geographical lists where the author purposefully makes the record stop, so to speak, and asks for our attention asks for us to sit up and take notice. and We must remember that in the divinely inspired word of God, there are no accidents. And so our job is to do our best to unpack why these seemingly odd stories are inserted where they are. And what I believe we will find as we read through this historical narrative is that it points to an eternal truth that in our salvation, God is giving us a portion of his abundant grace. And in that portion, we will be forever satisfied and joy-filled. So let's begin this morning with a picture of that abundant grace, a picture of God's abundant grace. We'll start in chapter 16. We first need to be reminded of what grace is. So let's read Joshua 16:1 through 4. It says there, the allotment of the people of Joseph went from the Jordan by Jericho, east of the waters of Jericho, into the wilderness, going up from Jericho into the hill country of Bethel, then going from Bethel to Luz, it passes along to Ataroth, the territory of the Arkites, then it goes down westward to the territory of the Japhalites, as far as the territory of Lower Beth Horon, then to Gezer, and it ends at the sea. Now we are a church that takes the word of God very seriously, amen. You guys are here this morning because you like to study God's Word. There are no sermonettes for Christianettes in this church, amen? Amen. And so we study it book by book, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse. But as we asked last time, what happens when we run into a section that is so repetitive and difficult? What happens when we get bored in our morning devotion? It seems like this section of chapters 16 through 19 is just one long section of place names we can't pronounce nor can we picture in our mind. If I stumble when I'm reading it, and I got trained in Hebrew and Greek, what hope do I have, right? That's what you think. So what's the point of reading this section? What's the point of reading through these chapters? Well, as a reminder, Joshua is a hinge book that looks back at the history of Israel. The forefathers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob led to Jacob's offspring, the 12 heads of the tribes that made up the people of Israel. And it was to these patriarchs that God made the promise that they would inherit the land of Canaan. The book of Joshua, especially the portion we are in, is the realization of those promises. It is God fulfilling the promises that he had given his people. And for us as Christians, this should be very encouraging, should it not? God fulfills his promises. But Joshua also looks forward to a day when God's people will dwell in safety in the midst of a land that is led by a better Joshua, the one true king, Jesus the Messiah. And so early church fathers all the way through the reformers looked to this section of Joshua to see pictures and allegories of the eternal inheritance intended for the full people of God from every tribe that we now know as the church. Our earlier reading that Lauren read to us from Hebrews talked about that fact, that all of them were given an inheritance, but it spoke of a better country, a heavenly country that these patriarchs were waiting for. And so here, what is pictured as physical inheritance stands symbolically and metaphorically as a picture of the spiritual inheritance given through Christ our Lord. And the theme that we take to heart is that God makes good on his promises. The inheritance that is being given, as we learned last week here in Joshua, is unmistakable evidence of God's faithfulness to his promises. Here in Joshua, he's making good on his promises of a physical land in which his people can dwell. But this then stands allegorically as a picture that he is likewise given each person that is born again through Jesus Christ, a guaranteed inheritance of eternal life with him. This is the theme throughout these chapters in which the inheritance of the land is handed out. Now, these first four verses of Joshua 16 are simply an introduction to the land allotment for the people of the tribe of Joseph. The tribes of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh had already gotten their allotment on the east side of the Jordan, and the tribes of Judah and Levi had been given their inheritance on the west. And now Joshua turns to Ephraim and the remaining half-tribe of Manasseh, both of whom are sons of the tribe of Joseph and now you're caught up to where we find ourselves today. Now, as this inheritance is being handed out to Manasseh, we come to one of these stories that springs out of the text. It doesn't flow with the repetition, and so it causes us to sit up and take notice. Would you read with me in Joshua 17, verses 1 through 6? 17, 1 through 6. All the landmarks of what's been given to Ephraim is there, and then we hit in 17.1 this odd story. It says, then the allotment was made to the people of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph. To Makir, the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead, were allotted Gilead and Bashan, because he was a man of war. And the allotments were made to the rest of the people of Manasseh by their clans: Abiezer, Helek, Asriel, Shechem, Hefer, and Shemedah. These were the male descendants of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, by their clans. Now, Zelephad, the son of Hepher, son of Gilead, son of Mahir, son of Manasseh, had no sons, but only had daughters. And these are the names of his daughters. <clears throat> Excuse me. Maklah, Noah, Hoglah, Milcah, and Tirzah. They approached Eliezer, the priest, and Joshua, the son of Nun, and the leaders, and said, "'The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers.' So according to the mouth of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among the brothers of their father. Thus there fell to Manasseh ten portions besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which is on the other side of the Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance along with his sons. The land of Gilead was allotted to the rest of the people of Manasseh. Now, if you know anything about the inheritance, the traditional inheritance, in most of the history of man, the inheritance of a father could really only ever pass to his male heirs, primarily his first male heir. This was part of the reason that there were so many laws around marriage and the legitimacy of offspring in our history. Now, if you didn't know who the father of a certain child was, then they had no right to their land or estate. And they definitely didn't have right to a throne. And this was the case for most of the history of man in the vast majority of cultures. Up until the suffrage movement, women, in essence, had no rights, especially when it came to inheritance. But what we encounter here is a reminder of the story of the daughters of Salafad. The background to this can be found in Numbers 27. Would you turn there with me in your Bibles? Go back to the left, past Deuteronomy to Numbers 27. And let's read the background together. 27.1, 27.1, it says, Then drew near the daughters of Zelephad, the son of Hepher, son of Gilead, son of Makir, son of Manasseh, from the clans of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. Now, why do they do this listing all the time? Well, because this is the proof that they are supposed to inherit. But the problem is, is they're women. And that is a problem in this day. It's not a problem today, it's a problem in this day. And the names of his daughters were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. And they stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the chiefs and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting, saying, our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah. In other words, he didn't take part in the rebellion, but he died for his own sin and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. Now, guys, we read this and we think, yeah, that's, that's right. They should get it. That's fair. Friends, in this day, that was mind-blowing. That was insane, what they're coming to ask. Now, Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, "'The daughters of Zelophad are right. "'You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers "'and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. "'And you shall speak to the people of Israel, saying, "'If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter.'" And if he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the nearest kinsman of his clan, and he shall possess it. And it shall be for the people of Israel a statute and rule as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, our world today loves to call the God of the Bible names like archaic, chauvinistic, and misogynist. But the truth of the matter is that in the culture of the day, both Jewish and pagan, what we see here is unreal in its advanced, otherworldly grace. God sees that these daughters were not able to receive their inheritance because their father had no sons. And so God steps in and makes a provision for them that they might inherit what was promised to their father. When all the rest of the world was saying that women had no rights because they were not of value, the God of the Bible, the God of the Hebrews, stated otherwise clearly. Friends, don't buy into the lie that the Bible has nothing to say about women's rights or topics like sexuality, gender, marriage, and protecting the life of the unborn because it supposedly is out of touch and misogynistic. That is just a bold-faced lie. God cares deeply for the women he has created, and his word is for you in the midst of really difficult topics, like abortion, like gender. Don't cast off what the Bible says. It is truth. Don't dismiss it because our culture says it knows better. God's word knows best. God knows best. But that's a side point. The main point here is that the law of the Hebrews stated clearly that it was the male heirs that would inherit. They were going against the very Torah, the law of God. When the law plainly stated that they would not receive inheritance though, God acts by grace within his own law and he finds a way to give these women unearned, undeserved favor among his people. They were outside of the inheritance as defined by the law. But now, by grace, they have been given an inheritance. What a picture of God's abundant grace. If that weren't blatant enough, walk with me a bit to see how this plays out in the midst of the gospel you and I proclaim every Sunday. For it's by this very act of grace that you and I are able to declare Jesus Christ as our King. Did you know that? Step forward a bit. In the book of Numbers, and this is what you see in Numbers 36, 6 through 9. You can see it up on the screen there. This is what the Lord commanded concerning the daughters of Zelophehad: Let them marry whom they think best, only they shall marry within the clan of the tribe of their father. The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another, for every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the people of Israel shall be wife to one of the clan of the tribe of her father, so that every one of the people of Israel may possess the inheritance of his fathers. So no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another, for each of the tribes of the people of Israel shall hold on to its own inheritance. In order to not change the law completely, and in order that the tribes would maintain the inheritance that God had given them, a provision is given within the law that when a man has only daughters as his heirs, they will inherit the land if they marry within their tribe. Now, the statement here, they can marry whom they think best, is again far beyond the time and culture in terms of its egalitarian nature. But more important is the fact that this is how God keeps this loophole, if you will, legal within his already existent law. Now, you might be thinking, Hans, what does this have to do with Jesus Christ? Why does this matter to us? Well, look with me, if you would. Go to the New Testament. Go to the book of Matthew, chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Give me an amen when you get there. Notice Matthew 1.1. This is the book of the genealogy, okay? Genealogy, the inheritance listing of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now that's interesting because Jesus only had one earthly biological connection. And who was that? Mary. But if you look down at Matthew 1.16, notice what it says there. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Notice anything odd there? The lineage given of Jesus that makes it so that he could inherit the throne of King David and be the messianic king is through Joseph. But we all know that he had no biological connection to Joseph. He was not Joseph's progeny. Joseph was his earthly adopted father. Now Mary was with child by the immaculate conception made possible by the Holy Spirit. So why was it that Jesus could rightfully claim the throne of David and not be cast aside as a child with no paternal lineage? Because God had made provision for this very thing through the inheritance laws given to the daughters of Zeliphad. In an otherwise unknown section of Scripture that most people spend no time in, God had made provision so that you and I could receive a Christ, a Messiah King in the lineage of David. And Mary, being from the tribe of Judah, married within the tribe of Judah to a man named Joseph and made it possible that the royal inheritance of the throne of David might be passed to her son, Jesus So amazing is the providential hand of God that put all these things in place so that you and I might be able to stand redeemed and forgiven by the work of our King Jesus. And what a beautiful picture of the outcome of the gospel for you and I in this church. The majority of us that stand here in worship of Christ were once like the daughters of Zelophe. As Gentiles by birth and sinners by nature, the law was clear that you and I had no portion And the eternal inheritance meant for the people of God. But by the pure and abundant grace of God, he made a way that you and I could be grafted into his people so that we too might be redeemed to his glory and praise. We were outside of the inheritance, but through God's grace we were brought in. Now remember the words of Paul to the church of Ephesus, The moral law was clear that you and I had no right to an eternal inheritance much like the daughters of Zeliphad because of the original sin initiated by our first father, Adam. He too died in his sin like the father of the daughters of Zeliphad. And this was then increased by our own active rebellion against God. But in spite of this, God saw fit to make a way for you and I to get what we do not deserve, his love, and his forgiveness. Only by the work of Christ, the one to whom this seemingly odd story in Joshua points, can you and I receive the eternal inheritance in life with God. Not by our merit, but only by his blood. Not by our work, but only by his gracious sacrifice. How beautifully the story of the daughters of Zelophe Picture the abundant grace of God. But for the sake of time, we must move on. Would you turn back with me to Joshua, and we'll see next the call to take hold of God's abundant grace. The call to take hold of God's abundant grace. You guys still with me? Let's read in Joshua 17. 14 through 18, the listing continues of the inheritance, and we come to this story in 17:14. Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I am a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me? And Joshua said to them, If you are a numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest, and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. The people of Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Bethshan and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, You are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only. But the hill country shall be yours, for though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest border- borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. As we continue along in this description of the allotment of the inheritance given to the half-tribe of Manasseh, we come to another story that makes us stop and sit up and take notice and ponder what's going on. Here we see the people of Joseph come to Joshua with a complaint, that the portion that they have been given is too small. They want more. It's not enough for them. Now Joshua's response is that they have been promised and guaranteed this land by God, but they need to take hold of it By going and clearing the ground that might be difficult and possibly fight off and remove the remaining Canaanites that are in their midst. In other words, in the midst of the abundant grace they had been given, there was some work that God was calling them to do. Now, this was not work that would invalidate the fact that it was God's gift in the first place that gave them the land. And we have seen over and over again that it was God who promised that he would fight on their behalf. It was his empowerment that would actually clear away the enemies. All of this was grace. But then we've also seen that it was through ordinary means, ordinary means of the Israelites' obedience in the midst of the battle that God would bring the full possession of the land to fruition. Now again, the early church fathers all the way to the Reformers saw this part of Joshua as a picture of the fight of every New Testament Christian. For between the point at which Christ calls us to himself in salvation and the point in which he will welcome us into his glory... There is this life that we now live of toil and struggle, a life in which we contend against the enemies of sin within and sin without, a life in which we fight against the old man of rebellion within each of us. And it is only through the ordinary means of our daily obedience to Christ that we are able to gain ground in this war of sanctification and growth into the image of Christ. Now there is an errant view of salvation that is taught throughout Christendom and has been for a very long time called antinomianism. Everybody say antinomianism. Antinomianism. This is a view that begins with the same view that we teach, that God has saved us by his grace alone, and we agree with that. But what this view then says is that from that point on, it doesn't matter what you do or how you live. It is antinomian. It is against the law. And in fact, this view that sits subversively in many churches revels, in a spiritual laziness, and a view that if you do any work, any striving at all to grow in Christ, then you must not understand God's grace. It revels in being spiritually lazy. But the picture we have before us in Joshua speaks against this idea and pictures instead the true Christian walk. It speaks to the fact that we have been brought into the inheritance of God solely by His grace, And it also says that for us to take hold of the fullness of that inheritance, we must rely upon the power of God to drive out the sin in our midst. It will not be complete until Christ does his work, but that doesn't negate the obedience that's required of us. In the time in between, we work as God's tools, striving through the ordinary means of our daily spiritual warfare to take hold of that which he has guaranteed us. Friends, this is the message, not just in the Old Testament or in the pictures of the Old Testament, but all throughout the New Testament as well. God's work of salvation is pure grace. He has elected us, called us, chosen us by his grace, nothing we have done. He alone has elected us to salvation. God's work of glorifying us and raising us to eternal life at the end of our lives, it too is grace alone. We cannot accomplish it. But the work of sanctification is one in which we partner with the Holy Spirit to engage in the daily battle. Listen to how Peter balances this grace with effort in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-11. through 11. Peter says, His divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Right? He's given it to us. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, because of this grace that you have been given, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness." and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Just as the people of the tribe of Joseph needed to take hold of the promised inheritance God had given them, and was actively working in their midst to bring to fruition, you and I need to do the same. We have been given the weapons of the gospel, of God's word, of prayer, and the community of faith of the local church to engage in the warfare to which we are called. And it is through employing these weapons that we will gain ground and find the fulfillment of our inheritance. It is an inheritance that is found in the holiness that comes in the here and now and the hope of complete redemption to come. Friends, if you see someone locked in a battle and they have weapons at their side, but they don't pull them out to use them, what do you know about that person? You know that they are either already dead or they're about to be. So many Christians have the weapons of the gospel and the word of God and prayer and the local church, and yet they do not use them and then wonder why God has forsaken them when in fact it is them that has forsaken God. We must use the weapons he has given us. Brothers and sisters, you must take hold of it. No amount of church programs or listening to Christian music or podcasts No amount of participation in a Christian subculture will gain you sanctification. It's only found in walking in the ordinary means of grace that God has given to you. Friends, if you do not have a Bible, let us give you one today. The people at the back table would be happy to give you a Bible. If you do not read the Bible that you have, then let us get you set up with a reading plan. Ladies of the church you can jump into a wonderful Bible study that we have going through the book of John right now. If you do not pray, well, come to the monthly night of prayer. Talk to my good friend Paul Webb over here and let the wonderful people that go there teach you what prayer looks like. If you feel like you come in and out of church on Sunday but are totally disconnected, talk to the folks at the back table to get connected to a community group to initiate relationship. And friends, if you are not a member of a local church, then we invite you to be part of the community here, or we can connect you with another really good church where you live. Let's get you connected with brothers and sisters who can encourage you and exhort you in the daily fight against sin and encourage you towards holiness in Christ. We have many weapons ready to be used. The question is, will you use them and take hold of the abundant grace, the portion of the abundant grace that God has given you. In Christ, God has given us abundant grace and now he is calling each of us to take hold of it. But perhaps maybe that seems a bit overwhelming to you. Maybe this is the first time you've heard the gospel of Jesus. Maybe it's the first time you've come face to face with it. Or maybe you are at a point where you just don't know steps forward in your walk. Well, The next portion of our text in Joshua is a great place to start. For it is there that we see the center of God's abundant grace. And if you are at a place where you're just beginning in your walk with Christ, this is where you focus, the center of God's abundant grace. Let's take a look at Joshua 18, verses 1 through 6. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Provide three men from each tribe, and I will send them out that they may set out and go up and down the land. They shall write a description of it with a view to their inheritances, and then come to me. They shall divide it into seven portions. Judah shall continue in his territory on the south. And the house of Joseph shall continue in their territory on the north. And you shall describe the land in seven divisions and bring the description here to me, and I will cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. The last seven tribes need their inheritance here, but there is a question of how it will be distributed. And so Joshua calls everyone to gather, to come together to reorganize at a place called Shiloh. And there he sets up the tent of meeting to organize them and call them to go out and take hold of the final portions of God's abundant and gracious inheritance. Now, interestingly, this is the only mention of the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, in all of Joshua, so it stands out. And if you don't remember, the tent of meeting is the tabernacle that God commanded Israel to build and place in the center of their encampment, whenever, wherever they went as they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. It was crafted in a way that it reminded Israel of the Garden of Eden, the story of mankind's rebellion and God's gracious salvation being brought forth from his chosen people. Most importantly, it was the place in which the people of God were able to offer sacrifices to atone for their sin in which the high priest mediated their relationship between God and his people. In other words, the tabernacle was the connection point between heaven and earth. And it's at this connection point that Joshua gathers the people so that they might take hold of the rest of the abundant grace offered to them by God. Friend, if you're here today and you just can't seem to get traction in your walk with Christ, or maybe you feel a bit lost in taking hold of the inheritance God has given you, then I have good news for you. All you need to do is do what Joshua and Israel did here. Gather with God's people at the place in which heaven and earth meet, And refocus on your worship of God. And how do we do this in the New Testament? Because we have no tent out in the wilderness? Well, we gather with God's people, his church, in which his Holy Spirit dwells, and we refocus upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For it was Jesus who this tabernacle ultimately pointed to. Physically, it was just a simple tent, What made it special and what made the connection point between heaven and earth was the fact that God's spirit, his very Shekinah glory, chose to dwell there above the Ark of the Covenant. His glory was purposefully housed amidst this earthly tent. In the book of John, we're told that this picture points to Christ. In John 1.1, we are told that God took on flesh in the form of his son, Jesus of Nazareth. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it says in verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the Greek, this word dwelt is the word eskenosim. And it literally means that God tented, God tabernacled amongst us. He became the tabernacle. He took on the tent of the earthly body of Jesus of Nazareth, being 100% man, but also being 100% God, because God's glory dwelt within him. And Jesus literally became a walking tabernacle, a walking temple in which heaven and earth meet, and through whom the relationship of God and man could be redeemed. And so here in Joshua chapter 18, as the congregation assembles at the tabernacle at Shiloh, the place where heaven and earth meet, we see a picture of the center of God's abundant grace. As Israel gathered to organize and hand out the remaining abundant grace of the promised land, they came together to a place where they could be reminded of the one who had given them that grace. There they remembered and worshiped the one who had saved them from being enslaved to a foreign kingdom, had drawn them together as a people, helped them conquer their enemies, and the one who had helped them take hold of the inheritance guaranteed to them. Now, brothers and sisters, we are called to the same thing. God has appointed a day each week upon which we, his people, gather together. It is the very day upon which our Messiah, Jesus, rose from the dead to take hold of the throne which we had usurped in sin. And when we gather on this, the Lord's day, we come together as the New Testament temple of God. For within our gathered body, the Holy Spirit dwells. And here amongst God's people, singing God's praise, loving one another in His name, and being refined by His gospel, we have our minds refocused on the task at hand. We are reminded that we are called to go out into this broken world around us and proclaim God's good news to those who are lost and dying. We are reminded that we are called daily to the fight against our old man within us that strives in rebellion. And we are called to give our lives, the territory of our hearts, inch by inch over to Christ's reign. And we are reminded and encouraged that one day this battle will come to an end and we will stand fully in the rest of God's abundant grace in a renewed heaven and earth where Christ reigns above all. Friends, we don't gather because it is how we earn God's love. In fact, we don't even gather on Sundays because it's just all that fun. We gather because we need it. We don't gather because it merits us His grace. We gather because we know as Christians we have no other choice. To whom or to what else would we ever turn that can give us the gift of life? For with God alone, in His Word alone, and amongst His people alone, do we find God's abundant grace. Friend, if you are distant from God's people, perhaps today is the day where God is calling you so close that you might gather with His people and take full possession of His abundant grace. And the starting point is simply to gather amongst the temple of His people in worship of the one who is the center point of God's abundant grace, Jesus Christ. If you're wondering, what else must I do? Then the answer is simple. Believe on the one whom God the Father sent, Jesus Christ. And it's from this center point of Jesus Christ and his people that we then can look forward to the culmination of God's abundant grace. The culmination of God's abundant grace. Let's read Joshua eighteen, nine through 11. 18, 9 through 11. So the men went and passed up and down in the land and wrote in a book a description of it by towns and seven divisions. Then they came to Joshua to the camp at Shiloh. And Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua apportioned the land to the people of Israel, to each his portion. The lot of the tribe of the people of Benjamin, according to its clans, came up. And the territory allotted to it fell between the people of Judah and the people of Joseph. From this point on, through chapter 19, the inheritance for the remaining seven tribes is handed out. And it begins here with the tribe of Benjamin, and then it's given to the remaining tribes, Simeon, Zebulun, Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan. Seven tribes in total receive the inheritance. And finally, after all that is complete, at the end of chapter 19, Joshua, the one who has led them, is able to receive his apportioned inheritance, his portion of God's gift of abundant grace. Friends, even here, even amidst this seemingly boring list of inheritance of these tribes, a beautiful picture of the gospel we proclaim is present. From that center of God's grace, inheritance is given to every tribe, and that inheritance begins with the tribe of Benjamin. In Hebrew, Benjamin is Ben-Yamin, and it means the son of the right hand. It is a name that means a position of favor. The Bible tells us that when Jesus died for our sins on the cross of Calvary, he conquered death and hell and the kingdom of darkness that plagues mankind and all creation. He proved this victory by raising three days later from the grave, a fact that every human has to wrestle with. And from there, he proved his resurrection for 40 days, appearing to hundreds of witnesses. And then the Bible proclaims that he ascended to heaven, the very throne room of God the Father, where he was given the position of power and authority at, you guessed it, the right hand of the Father. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, became the first to inherit the abundant grace of the Father of eternal life. The New Testament calls him the first fruits of the resurrection. And from this position as the one who saves us and redeems us, he was able to welcome you and I into his people and declare us forgiven and restored. And so our inheritance, brothers and sisters, it begins with the son of the right hand. And from there, God's abundant grace went out through the gospel of Jesus Christ to every tribe under heaven throughout the world. And one day we are assured that when we stand before the throne of God in glory, we will look around and see men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation all singing the praise of God and worshiping and thanksgiving for his abundant grace that we do not deserve. This is the very vision given by God to John the Revelator when he pictures an eternity future where we stand with God in heaven amidst every tribe. In these remaining six tribes in Joshua, we see a picture of the abundant grace of God going out to every tribe of God's people. And once these tribes are apportioned their inheritance, Joshua himself, we are told in our text, will finally take hold of this inheritance. Let's look at this final portion of Joshua 19, starting in verse 49. Would you turn there with me? Joshua 19, verse 49. It says, when they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritances, the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua the son of Nun. By command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he asked, Timnath Serah, in the hill country of Ephraim, and he rebuilt the city and settled in it. These are the inheritances that Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel distributed by lot at Shiloh before the Lord. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, so they finished dividing the land. Now, throughout this book, we have noted that Joshua is a picture of Jesus, for both Joshua and Jesus mean the same thing. Their names mean Yahweh saves. In Hebrew, Jesus' name is the same as Joshua. And it is Jesus who, like Joshua, is the ultimate general of the Lord's people. He is the ultimate warrior who conquers the kingdom of our enemies and brings us the inheritance that has been promised to us. And here, this picture continues beautifully. For all Joshua asks for as his inheritance is a city, and that city's name is Timnath Serah. In Hebrew, this name means a portion of abundance. And what a beautiful picture that points forward to the culmination of God's abundant grace. For at the end of the story, in the book of Revelation, we are told that the full people of God are pictured as a beautiful city known as the New Jerusalem. And that city is prepared for our better Joshua, Jesus, that he might live there amongst his people for all eternity. This from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Brothers and sisters, right now, it seems like sin and death and darkness has the upper hand. It seems like we are Israelites among the Canaanites and the giants of the land. And it seems like we have land left to conquer, but oftentimes it's too difficult and even scary to try and take hold of the inheritance that God has prepared for us. We often feel too weak for the battle, but this is why it's so important for us to gather together as his people, to be reminded of his abundant grace, to hear weekly the call to take hold of that abundant grace. To weekly refocus our eyes on the center of that abundant grace in Jesus Christ and his gospel. And then to be encouraged by the coming culmination of that abundant grace that we are assured and that is guaranteed to us. Just as God promised Israel the land of Canaan and stayed true to that promise, God has promised you and I eternal life through the blood-bought salvation of Jesus Christ. The question for you sitting here today is, have you accepted the portion of abundant grace that has been given to you by God? Maybe this morning you are realizing that you do not know Jesus as Lord and King at all. I want to assure you that God is calling you and he desires to give you an eternal inheritance with him. So answer his call. Turn from all that has taken you away from him and embrace him as the Savior who has redeemed you and the King who desires to reign lovingly over your life. If you would like to do that and you just need some guidance as to what that looks like to follow and worship Jesus Christ, then one of our pastors, one of our elders, would love to talk with you after the service. I would love to talk with you about it. But perhaps this morning you have confessed Jesus as Lord and King, but you are realizing that you are like the tribe of Joseph, saying with your words that you are discontent and want to take possession of the portion of of abundant grace that God has given you, but you know that your actions and the way you live your life speaks otherwise. What ordinary means of grace and warfare do you need to step further into today so that God's Holy Spirit can work into your life? Is it in how you interact with the word or lack thereof? Is it in your prayer life or lack thereof? Or is it in how you interact with God's church, or lack thereof? This week, friends, I want to challenge you to reach out to a brother or sister in this church to ask for help and to build a plan for what it looks like for you to further step into the abundant grace that Christ has given you. The free gift of God's grace has been bought and paid for at the cross of Calvary, and it is waiting for you to take hold of it more fully. Friends, this is not a name-it-and-claim-it gospel. This is not about getting healthy, wealthy, and wise. This is about taking hold of the holiness and the righteousness that Christ has purchased for you. Relationship with him, his righteousness in your life, and an eternity with him are all there before you and ready to be grasped. Out of the abundance of his good character and infinite provision, God has apportioned out an eternal inheritance for his people from every tribe under heaven. It is a perfect inheritance, and each one of us has a portion of that abundant grace. As we now continue to worship through communion, let's take stock of what Christ has done for us. And as we sing and praise together, let's speak to the Lord in gratitude and thanksgiving and remind one another... In congregational singing of how good and kind he has been to give us a portion of his abundant grace. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we know, as we said earlier, that there is no part of it that is a mistake or is meant to not speak of your abundant grace. And so we thank you for the pictures and the allegory in the book of Joshua, how this simple truth of an inheritance that you promised and that you gave to the Israelites gives us an understanding of your grace for us in an eternal way. And so as we now give you praise through the rest of this service, as we proclaim your gospel through our taking of the bread and the cup that symbolize your body and blood, and as we give praise to you through song as a body of Christ together, We pray, Lord, that you would light a fire within us that we might take hold and grasp the abundant provision that you've given us. For every person in this room, Lord, I pray that you would speak to their hearts by your Holy Spirit and bring conviction into their life as to what steps they need to take to partner with your Holy Spirit in taking hold of the abundant grace you've already been given. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for calling us each week to refocus ourselves, to gather together and focus on the center of your grace, your son, Jesus Christ. Be with us now and guide us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.